The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for uh, the mighty resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray that this day as we celebrate his victory over death and the grave, which is uh, a victory we share in, that you would give us grateful hearts to sing your praises. Lord, uh, that we uh, are not alone, uh, but we have brothers and sisters uh, by virtue of his shed blood and the waters of baptism uh, around the world, uh, even Georgetown, South Carolina. And so we thank you uh, for bringing Fitz and Martha to us. Uh, we pray that you would bless them and continue to use them uh, as uh, a family that declares the oracles of God uh, to his people and to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, here we are. And uh, it's, it's always wonderful to have you. Uh, Bishop, you and uh, you grew up in Columbia. Yes. And then... Um, Some people say I didn't grow up. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, Columbia, and then uh, you, you married. Uh, you, uh, well, why don't you tell us uh, how you got here? Well, I went to um, University of South Carolina right before I was 18 and got in, graduated high school at 17, so I was, had three semesters before I went into the Army. Uh, much to my foolishness, I was deeply disappointed. I missed action. <laughs> I, all I had to do was to see Saving Private Ryan and decided I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I had uh, two years of service in the Army, got out and went to Sewanee, and uh, uh, had already established a relationship with Advent before that with John Turner. And then uh, from there, I went to uh, Virginia Seminary and uh, Oxford, and um, was for two years an assistant at Trinity, Columbia. Uh, the bishop sent me back there, and I, he was, you know, he was about 65. You know how older people sort of get confused, and so I said, but, but Bishop, um, I grew up in that parish, and he said, yes, I know. I said, well, it's a little uncomfortable going into the parish where people know me that well. <laughs> I had not behaved too well in, as a teenager. And um, he said, no, that's all right. And I said, but Bishop, perhaps you're not sufficiently familiar with the scriptures. And he, he said, what is that? Well, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. <laughs> and he leaned back a little further and said, son, I don't think there's any danger you're being a prophet. <laughs> uh, and then I went and t taught at Sewanee in Virginia and uh, did my graduate work at Oxford and came back, or came back and then uh, did that. And then uh, I went to Grace Church in New York, mm -hmm. a wonderful church. And, uh, I love that better than any part of my ministry. Was, mm. uh, Rattle off a, a list of some of the uh, associates that you had there at, at Grace Church. Well, um, uh, Paul Zoll, of course, comes right uh, up uh, immediately, and um, Laurie Thompson, the dean, interim dean at Trinity, mm -hmm. he was there, and uh, Jim Monroe, mm -hmm. uh, my wife and my um, daughter 
said when Paul Zoll and I and Jim Monroe were on the staff that there, the Jim Monroe was the great preacher. <laughs> and he was. <laughs> um, and uh, there are others that were similar. Uh, Jim, Jim Donald was a student assistant. Jim I was so good. I brought him to Charleston and uh, he was from New Jersey and he said, you know, the natives in Charleston have a very unusual custom. What's that, Jim? They named their, their children after streets. <laughs> 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 he says he's going to name his 17 bypass. You know? <laughs> That's very funny. So now, you, you mentioned that uh, you and Moth both think that the, the greatest part of your ministry, because after there you went to become the Bishop of South Carolina, but, but was there at Grace Church, right off of Broadway there, yeah. right next to NYU. Tell us why yeah. that is. Uh, well, it was, um, well, well, first of all, they were worried because th things had, uh, there was a lot of, in that area, a lot of drugs and it was not a very healthy area uh, socially. And um, it had been one of the great fashion churches, uh, but everything sort of moved uptown. I, I used, had used the term uh, uptown all my life. I didn't know what it meant until I found New York. <laughs> we were not uptown, you know. And, uh, but it was an absolutely exquisite building. Uh, it was one of the finest things that Renwick ever did. And, uh, and the people were I, some of the finest um, uh, lay people I've ever known were there. Uh, New Yorkers are different, you know. In the South, if you preach a bad sermon, uh, they say it. Oh, oh, Parson, that that was so far over my head, you know. Uh, <laughs> and in New York, they'll say, I didn't quite understand what you were getting at. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a, it's tough, and uh, and it's nice to be around this kind of crack for a little southern boy. I, uh, it was good for me, and I enjoyed it, and had a wonderful group of people. Was part of it that group of people being able to invest in people like Paul and Jim Monroe yeah. and others? Yeah, and Paul. I mean, we the church really took off, and and I got a lot of credit for it. But, but Jim and uh, and Paul did so much of the work. Mm -hmm. It was given to them to really put the arm on folks and invite them in. You know. and we, we had a wonderful time there. And then going on to, uh, to South Carolina, uh, you, um, you got there around 1980, is that right? That's right. And uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about how that ministry was different from being, because you'd already been in the context of teaching in a theological seminary, but then you were a rector of a, of a church that was vibrant. And then uh, you became a bishop, and you really kind of ended your bishop, uh, you know, not too long uh, before you retired, Hurricane Hugo came through. Yeah. Well, um, as soon as you're uh, consecrated as bishop of the Diocese of South Carolina, you are on the board or chairman of the board of 15 institutions. Right. Canugo, uh, St. Mary, um, Voorhees, uh, uh, the home for elderly in Columbia, Gadsden and Charleston, uh, York Place, uh, and they meet three or four times a year. You multiply that by, by 15, you've got an arithmetic problem. <laughs> <laughs> that, not only that, they're all um, 
in a, well, half of them at least would be in a capital funds drive, expecting the bishop to, so I used to say my job was not, um, uh, not symbolized by a crochet, but a tin cup. <laughs> I was out raising money for uh, Gadsden and for Portugal and for Canuga and for Sewanee and for St. Mary's and for and all these very fine institutions. You know. yeah. uh, but it's, to be on the East Coast and being uh, a, a bit, and these things don't die. You know, they're gone. They live and proliferate. So um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't as pleasant as uh, uh, at a parish. Mm -hmm. And what, what, was, what is it that you missed most uh, from parish life when, when you became a bishop? I missed people. Uh, bishop traveled it's in a di different parish each week. And um, every Sunday you're in a different church. So you, you don't have the connections with a, a vestry and the people you don't... Uh, had that constant thing. Uh, I remember being taught so much by Whitney North Seymour. He'd been president of the, uh, what do you call the president of the lawyers? What's it, law? Bar Association. Bar Association. He was the president of the American Bar Association. And his wife died soon after I got there. And there were three Supreme Court justices in the, at the funeral. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he, I'll never forget one thing he taught me. Um, um, the measure of a, of a civilization is a degree of its obedience to the unenforceable. Mm. Now think about that for a minute. The measure of a, a culture is the degree, if you've got to enforce things, there's just got to be a whole lot more policemen. And there never are enough policemen to go around. And then if they are, that can be corrupt, you know. Mm. And that that leads into the um, realization of responsibility and guilt. Mm -hmm. The secular world just sees guilt as a neurotic thing. Whereas, if you think about this politically and socially, without, without guilt, guilt comes from being responsible. Mm. What do you want, a, a civilization of sociopaths? I mean, the definition of a sociopath is no ability to feel guilt, no ability to feel remorse. Um, and uh, you, you would not want to be in a culture of sociopaths. Um, and so guilt is a very precious thing. Mm -hmm. But you can't just put it on without... I, I, I'm told that Japan has no word for guilt. It has a word for shame. But guilt is, has a mouth open waiting for food. Mm -hmm. Guilt uh, needs uh, sustenance. There is a problem in the very word guilt. Forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you don't have it in that language, you see. Um, and I think it's one of the great shameful things today is that we don't appreciate the treasure that guilt is. If you talk to a therapist, I mean, I remember this lady in New York, member of my parish, her job was uh, pediatric um, counseling for abused children. And they had to move people off that front line because it was just too sad for one person to be there indefinitely all along. Um, 
And we, we don't know what causes a sociopath, but no therapist is very happy about that prognosis. You know. um, uh, Edward Stein says, Germany uh, took on a kind of schizophrenia that cultures can take on the kind of personal pathologies and um, that our danger is not Nazi Germany's uh, of schizophrenia, where you have the, the discipline, the rationality, and the ultra-spagmatic uh, um, um, will to power. Um, ours is a sociopathic, where we're not guilty. I think to be be guilty is surely there there there's neurotic guilt. There's no question about that. We can be guilty of the wrong thing. So often that's a way to hide what you really are guilty about <laughs> uh, by making up something, um, washing your hands fourteen times. You know, uh, they, but um, how do we get there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we were talking about bishops. Oh. oh, oh. <laughs> By, by the way, um, there's a very good book um, about this redemption of guilt. It's called Guilt, Anger, and God. Um, uh, modesty forbids by telling you who wrote it. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually do want to talk about your books. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, Fear, Love, and Worship. Uh, Trust in an Age of Arrogance. Uh, and uh, last uh, but certainly not least, the one that really got the ball uh, rolling, um, the, the Rise of Moralism. Mm -hmm. And that was your doctoral work, was mm -hmm. it not? Mm -hmm. And so that was written, I don't want to date you, but that we're, we're looking at 60 years uh, and still has incredible staying power and still is impacting people today. Well, I must say Presbyterians read it and buy it, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it, it was my doctoral thesis in in uh, 1956, um, but uh, it's a very humbling thing. I find people that read it and don't see anything wrong with Jeremy Taylor. Do you know who Jeremy Taylor is? He, he's a we try not to mention his name around here. <laughs> Jeremy Taylor is a 17th century bishop and a wonderful person, but he had a very bad twist on his sermons, which was, Jesus is no friend of the sinner, and God will not hear the prayer of an unrighteous man. A wicked man can send forth no other, and ought to go to Holy Communion. Uh, you'll either eat your salvation or your damnation, and in order to eat to your salvation, you, you must have on the wedding garment, and the wedding garment must be a, um, a conjugation of all your endeavors, and it must be a seamless robe. And uh, you can look up in Trust in an Age of Arrogance, uh, page about 110, something like that. I just got angry after all 30 years of, or 40 years of this. Uh, I, I just named names of people that don't say anything wrong with that. I mean, I, I wouldn't send somebody to a quack doctor. And if you don't see something wrong with that message, what are you doing? And these are very influential people. They still won't re reply to me. I keep, <laughs> I keep asking, I said, do you go to communion with a uh, conjugation of all your endeavors? It's a seamless role. I mean, you're trying to be a sociopath, you know? Uh -huh. Certainly a Pharisee, you know? But what, what is 
Well, obviously, that, uh, that period of time in Anglicanism, which was a, a reaction against the more Protestant elements, uh, had a significant impact on Anglicanism uh, that bled into the lives of people like uh, John Wesley or Charles Simeon, who, yeah, yeah, you know, Charles yeah. Simeon, uh, his great dread and fear was receiving communion, which he would be forced to do yeah. as a student at Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, but today, uh, it's not just people, uh, you know, people may not know who Jeremy Taylor is, but how many people actually equate Christianity with moralism and right behavior? Well, that's why we say he's such a yeah. Christian man. Yeah. And I must say, uh, a correlation on this, uh, Jeremy Taylor on his knees and in his prayers was impeccable. He had said in his sermons, if Romans 7, 19 to 25, good I would, I do not, even that I would not, that I do, wretched man. If that's a statement about you, you're in no condition for forgiveness. That's what he said in his But then in a, he writes uh, a litany for going to Lent, Almighty, Almighty God, all my senses have been windows to let sin in. I'm in love with sin and love with death. I'd love to have it so. And one of it is Jeremy Taylor, excuse me, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, which some people say was the father of literary criticism, says that he will rank him as a prose writer with Milton and Bacon and Shakespeare, as a prose writer. Uh, he, could, he could write things. The body of sin dies divisively and fights perpetually with hopes to prevail. That's damn good. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, and so that, that lures people into uh, this. So there's some excuses, you know, for it. But still to go, um, I, I, think that, I think no one said this better than Paul Zoll, I think, is the, that uh, people are so afraid people are going to misbehave that they are not clear about giving them absolution and good news and that God does forgive sinners because mm -hmm. somebody might get the good idea to, to sin if God's going to forgive him, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and that anti charge of antinomianism has uh, followed preachers all around. Mm -hmm. Do you think, you know, I mean, that charge of, of lawlessness that, you know, if you preach the gospel, it is uh, just going to cause, give people license to misbehave. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your experience in ministry and uh, how the ministry that you've had has actually uh, borne out. Um, well, I think, first of all, someone told me years ago, and I've always appreciated it, don't ever underestimate somebody else's suffering. Mm. And especially people who are irritating you. that there's, there's a hurt there. And when you see that, you have a different attitude and relationship with them. Mm -hmm. when, when you see there's some hurt there. And if you could get to the hurt, often you get around and deflect the antagonisms and, and the static. And knowing how fragile we all are and so much of our energy meant to hide that fact and that it is such a danger to be vulnerable. And of course, that's what love is all about. If you love, you're hurtable. And we learn very early, be very careful about who you love or how you love. And so we need each other badly. And, that, and then 
from there you can go into sentimentality, but I always like to say sentimentality is long-range cruelty. <laughs> you need a lot of tough things about it. Mm. I mean, haven't you all, looking back, been so grateful for somebody who really quit putting up with what you were doing <laughs> in, in a kind but forceful way? Speaking of which, uh, if we can talk about you and your lovely wife, uh, Martha, for a minute, uh, it was if you're if you're okay with sharing the story, just uh, how um, how God is using both of you, uh, especially as you minister to one another. Um, it's been a long time now, but uh, believe it or not, 15 years ago or so, where I was in your home and I came down and nearly ran into a plumb line uh, in your foyer. And I thought it was a, such a funny little thing. And tell us why in the world in your foyer you would hang a plum. Well, I was sitting innocently in the pew in Prince George Winyard, and the very excellent preacher was preaching on Amos. But in spite of the uh, excellence of the sermon, my mind was wandering, and I was um, thinking about on my way to the House of Bishops meeting. And then I began to compare myself to the other bishops, my other colleagues in the House of Bishops, and I was coming off pretty well in that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and the preacher quit preaching, went to meddling, and poured Amos's plumb line right down in my pew. And I was absolutely humiliated. The subtleness of self-righteousness that just creeps up on you as if... Uh, you being better than, or thinking you're better than somebody else is any kind of righteousness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I would really, humiliated is not a hard enough word. Mm -hmm. Came home, went to the basement and got out my plum out of my carpenter's box and hung it up there. Because Amos's plum line, nobody's perfect. Nobody's plum. And when you've got that, you've got a little bit of humility. If you know you're not plumb. And if you look at other people that are not plumb, knowing you're not plumb is a, a great gift to you and to them. Um, and so I hung the thing there. After two years, Martha said, well, can't we take it down now? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, we can take it down anytime. There's no self-righteousness in this family. <laughs> and, and it's still there. <laughs> and if I could tell you one little cherished father's moment, I walked into my lawyer son's home in Charlotte, North Carolina, and there's a plumb line. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, made me weak. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you still are, are, are active in ministry, and um, as you go about, you and Martha both, and please feel free to charm in, chime in if you're, you're out there, uh, what, uh, what can the church be doing better? Where are we falling short? I think it goes back to one sort of basic thing and that is the maj majestic, transcendental, transcendent nature of Almighty God. Mm. It's just, that's too 
rare thing for minds today. Just take jokes about God. I can promise you in other ages, even people with wonderful sense of humor would have said, you don't make a joke about this. The joke's about uh, who is that that got in line on the way to Pearly Gates and, you, and he just passed everybody. Oh, that's God, he thinks he's a doctor. <laughs> I, I, I really think we ought to think this is terrible. There's no awe. Uh, there's no trembling. Um, who, who went to Germany? Anybody? Uh, uh, I heard, talk about envy, I would love, <laughs> love to have been there. Uh, but what happened to Luther when he first celebrated? I mean, he was Maybe trembling. Else, yeah. What happened to me when I first tried? Uh, well, I surely want to break a rubric. Mm. What about the, the bishop was there when I first celebrated? And I was, I was nervous because of the, the bishop. And my boss, you know. I was devoid of what Luther had before Almighty God. And I've been justification by grace through faith, uh, repentance, uh, the incarnation, the atonement, the trinity, all these are just so important. But if you, if you just got an avuncular uncle up there as, in your picture of God, you ain't got nothing. Mm. Nothing. When uh, Simeon, you mentioned Simeon, 18th century, uh, had to go to communion. Uh, he was taught by the book Whole Duty of Man and by Jeremy Taylor that he had to be in the state, having a desire of no sin, whatever. And uh, it was required there at Cambridge to go to c communion. And um, he trembled and trembled and trembled and broke into tears and took communion and uh, but then he knew he violated because he wasn't good enough to do this. Uh, but he was, um, uh, who would tremble today? Uh, I just um, preached a sermon the other, the other day that was not altogether uh, well received. Um, um, and I said, uh, we are trying to have a, a culture without God. We have, you, uh, and God, I, I was walking up 2nd Avenue in New York with a friend of mine. He said, Fitz, do you know what the wrath of God is? And I said, no, what's the wrath of God? He said, it's a church meeting from which God has withdrawn his Holy Spirit. <laughs> I've been to some of those. <laughs> and uh, God, I, I, from that time I began to see how God's wrath and his judgment can occur by his withdrawing his Holy Spirit and leaving us to our spirits. Romans 1. And um, it's hell mm -hmm. to be left our, it's, uh, of all people, Jean-Paul Sartre, the, Sartre, the uh, no exit, that, the playwright, the French playwright, he saw it better than theologians. Uh, hell is other people. Mm -hmm. If you've got no Holy Spirit in your spirit and no Holy Spirit in my spirit, and we're together forever, that is, <laughs> hell is other people, you know. Uh, and um, I, I think God is saying, you want politics without me? Help yourself. You want the universities without me? 
help yourself. Do you have any idea what is happening to universities? To, to a kind of monopolitical party position, 92% of professors all in one Democratic Party. Uh, well, um, Jesse Jackson can go out to University of California and say, hey, 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 ho, 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 Western civilization's got to go. And three months later, it's gone. A university? Uh, Yale took the Western civilization course out. Uh, somebody offered them $20 million to put it back in. They turned it out. The, the politically correct, I mean, a lot of people don't know what's going on in the universities, but if you, uh, Mary Ann Glendon, a Christian at Harvard, imagine that. <laughs> she's a Roman Catholic, she's in the, uh, she's in the law, law school. She said, everybody ought to read Thomas Wolfe's um, I Am Charlotte Simmons. She's a little, little Charlotte Simmons is from a high school, and she's a valedictorian in a little town in North Carolina. She goes to uh, DuPont University, <laughs> maybe Duke. <laughs> he spent five, four years of research on this thing. Uh, the sexual chaos there, not nearly as traumatic for Charlotte Simmons as the fact that the faculty, the teachers, the professors, didn't believe there was any truth. Now, if bankers don't believe in money, and doctors don't believe in medicine, and professors don't believe in truth, we're in trouble. Um, so you want universities, and there's some very, uh, George uh, Marsden, do you know that name? Sure. Uh, a history of American universities from Protestant establishment to secular um, establishment. Uh, and the secular religion has taken over the universe. Um, you want a culture without me? Help yourself. Do you think that in the church, I mean, from what you've just said, that we've, we've gotten to a place where the church is ministering and preaching in such a way that it's lost touch with the culture because it tends to preach and, and minister in a way that assumes people tremble before God, uh, that, that the culture is still largely Christian. And so uh, what they don't realize is that you know, they're really not going to come and darken the doors of the church. You have to go to them and engage them on their turf. You have to engage them in the public square in the university, mm -hmm. places like that to have their, pray that the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to who God is and what their condition is. You know, there was an excellent article in First Things not long ago by um, Ephraim Radda, and he was talking about something I hadn't thought of, um, but the... I find that very hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> I have, uh, in this 17th century, the, uh, the median age was uh, 37. I'm almost 90. I'm 89. Um, and that's not unusual. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a difference between living in a culture in which the average person dies at 37 hmm. than the average person dies at 60 to 70. Um, 
you don't think of eternal life. You think of this life. So the very elongation of, uh, of our lives and what magnificent thing doctors can do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm on Highway 17 going up to the dentist, to the dermatologist, to the oncologist, to the urologist, to the, you know, uh, uh, you know back and forth. And I'm alive because I got a lot of doctors keeping me alive, you know, uh, and painlessly, you know. I mean, that's never happened ever before in the history of the world. Um, and that keeps us, I think we just don't think. Mm. How many lawyers just wring their hands over people not thinking about a will and having to go to probate? Mm. That's not something you want to do, is it? <laughs> go to, um, and people, we just are blind. We are capable of not facing the fact we're going to die. I was walking down the street after Ash Wednesday with something on my head and a friend of mine and some friend of his stopped and said, what you got on you? You want to wash that thing off your ashes off your head? Why do you put that thing on that? Because I'm a sinner, I'm going to die. <laughs> so I thought it was a wonderful statement. I'm a sinner and I'm going to die. <laughs> and uh, I, we just naturally... I, I'm, I'm not going to die. I'm just going to hospice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the way we don't write wills, you know. We don't face the fact that... Uh, uh, so just even from a secular standpoint, uh, you know, putting God to the side, what, how we would reflect upon our lives and how we would live our lives if 19 was middle-aged? Yeah, yeah, how would we? I was at a funeral a couple of years ago and complaining about so many funerals I was going to. <laughs> um, and somebody next to me said, look at the, the ages of the people. They were eight, four years old, two years old. Mm. I mean, you just didn't, don't have that now. Uh, and we are the people that didn't die of diphtheria and malaria. Right. Hubenkopf. Well, any questions for Bishop Allison that y'all would like to ask? You can ask him anything. Bishop, thank you for your time. Um, you have the benefit of all these years of watching the Advent, and today we, we, we are a church of, of resources with this somewhat youthful ministry uh, <laughs> underway the, with our clergy, uh, and in a world you just described um, that is needing of the, of the good news. You have a thought for us about the Advent as we envision where we go as a, as a congregation. Do you have a thought for us as to, as to how we minister, how we go forward, um, in, in, given what you've seen of uh, churches over time and, and the setting that we're in today? Well, I think you've been blessed by the clergy you've had, who brought um, a gospel of grace uh, and understand that uh, by the law we're all condemned. And the law is good and it's graceful and it's worthy, but it's also the strength of sin. All of your clergy have known that and taught it. Is that right? Um, and then Paul saw in his characteristic humility, he used to say, I've just not succeeded in 
uh, and convincing people they weren't free. You know? uh, but I think many of you know that you, you're not, you were not born free. You were born in bondage. And when the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. So the doctrine is, is the crucial one. Uh, but uh, the doctrine, of course, has got to be lived. And the, the community and the service. Um, we worship God with our service. Service is a means to be like it. Uh, one of the key things in my whole understanding of the Christian faith is the word emulation. It means to, to be like. You become like what you praise. You become like what you honor. You become like what you reveal, consciously and unconsciously. Uh, my wife's roommate's mother had a haberdashery shop in Jackson, Mississippi, and used to pray for Jackie, Jacqueline Kennedy to put on a hat because hats were 30% of her income. And until someone with celebrity idol power could put on a hat, um, then everybody would put on a hat and the money would come in. You see. Um, I found it myself uh, uh, mimicking people that I didn't know I was mimicking because I respected them. Uh, my two oldest sons uh, used to go to a very expensive barber. And then the Beatles came over here. And then they wouldn't go to any barber. <laughs> and I, I've, I've used that in front of them, and they swear that had nothing to do with it. You know, They were so unconscious uh, of it. Um, and so if service, what you serve, if the outreach programs, this is part of the lifeblood of the Advent. I don't know Advent well enough to know what out outreaches you have, but there are so many desperate needs in the city of Birmingham. That's the doctrine, the outreach, the commission, overseas missions, to be involved with the worldwide thing of what God is doing and to know that you are part of that. Uh, this is what, and I can't tell you how heartwarmed I was with the service this morning. I grew up with that kind of service. And I, I don't want to push this too far because I, I think there's a lot of wonderful um, praise music. But to have that good music and that choir and that morning prayer and have it done so well, I have not heard that since Grace Church, New York. Uh, and uh, it's just it's absolutely um, wonderful what you're doing here. If I were nearby, I wouldn't have to be nearby. I'd drive a long way to come to have <laughs> I have a question going back to your comment about being more in awe of who God is and what he's done for us. And um, we had done a devotion in the car, and we were asking our children, you know, how do you feel about God and the awe of God, and what do you think about all being? And my one child was like, the sky and the grass and the trees that God made. And then my son said, I've been running really well, and I'm really in awe of my running, which is hilarious that that's so him, but I think they are out of touch of what God has done. Do you have any suggestions on how we get back to that or how we teach our children that? 
That is so true. I, I wish I were able to say, uh, I think of a, a man named, uh, um, I can't think of his name now, but he was in 1815 and he was, had a microscope that was just recently invented and he was looking at a spider's eye. And he said, I am astonished, I am astonished. Good God, I'm astonished. I mean, it just, now, a scientist today doesn't do that. Well, look how complicated that is, you know. Mm -hmm. And you've got these irreducible complexities that do not evoke from our culture um, a sense of awe. Uh, surely artists can help us here. Mm. Uh, artists are different from the rest of us. <laughs> God has given them some way to look on not just at the phenomena, but the numinous, the, the reality underneath things. Uh, you've got one standing right there by you that <laughs> can teach us a lot about um, and David. There, there's always David. spanking, Kelly. Uh, <laughs> we all, our, our time's come to an end. The bishop has to get to the next service and preach. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. God bless you, Bishop.